Howdy. Hello, Victoria. How are you? Really good. Are you okay? I'm fine. I haven't seen you for ages and ages. All we do is talk to each other via the magic of, I don't know, is it Zoom? Is it Skype? Is it Teams? It's one of those shitty bloody everybody hates them everybody hates zoom and skype and teams and yet we're all living our lives on them yuck what are you talking about all that you ever (laughs) the only interaction that we ever have and i said i love and it sort of threw you for a nanosecond didn't it i love you're like i've never heard mitz say that no she hates everybody (laughs) well (laughs) it's going in it's going into what i love about hating something (laughs) and it's the fact that our communication is me going, here's another thing we need to do, down a text message. And that's your real voice as well, isn't it? You, know, you obviously put on a, a very posh, <laughs> false voice for these podcasts and your real voice is, me, 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 me. What about yours? My, my you talk all voice. high like um, like Levi Belfield yeah, in the, real the, life. The more, the more sort of indignant I get, the higher pitched my voice code. <laughs> do you know do you know i was said neither of my sisters will ever put in a, an appearance to listening to this so i can slag them off hugely when me and one of my sisters i've got a middle sister and an older one were sitting there talking about how when people lie their voices go high okay. and the other sister happened to come in because we only gather really for family food that gets yeah. all the pigs to the trough and uh, <laughs> and she came in and she was like what do you think of the apple pie that i made and i went it's really nice <laughs> <laughs> We couldn't breathe for a little while. I feel sorry for my eldest sister that she gets that kind of treatment from us being sad, How- juvenile and rude, really. We need, to, we need to know what the apple pie was really like. Oh, it was yummy. She's a really good cook, actually. Oh, so you weren't lying when you said it was I really was, nice. I wasn't, but I looked like a liar, which is even worse than being a liar. <laughs> As most of the criminals that we talk about might know. They might. Or might not know. They are liars, but they don't look like them. Talking of which, we've got something to come on to in a moment, haven't we? We certainly have, yeah. So we're going to be talking a little bit later on about the latest in Johnny Depp. And we've had some quite interesting... First, we've got to tell punters who we are. Oh, God. Ah, you always forget. I always forget this. I don't care. I don't know who I am. Uh, So my (laughs) name is Ben Ando. I'm a former BBC news correspondent, former crime reporter, covered lots of crimes, lots of court cases, lots of um, gruesome stories, and um, I live in Cambridgeshire. I'm Victoria Mitzi, and I've done lots of things, (laughs) some of them being of a journalistic variety, which is ultimately working in the dark. You you spent a lot of time working in the dark, didn't you? So I worked in the dark. I wasn't a night stalker. That's who we'll be talking about in a moment. But sort of, because I went through crimes in the dark and uh, reported on stuff and read out news bulletins, same as Ando, Ando. And <laughs> Mr. Rando. Mr. Rando, in the, known as, in the States, he's known as Mr. Rando. And I'm a domestic goddess in sunny Devon, which I don't know if you can hear the, the rain and the thunder and the window pane in <laughs> August in Devon at the moment. And I am a MILF. Oh, God. Oh, no, I'm not a MILF. OK, this is how it went, right? I, I had a little bit of a drinky poo over the weekend with my friend who may well listen to this. And I went, oh, aren't we MILFs? And she was like, well, I don't think we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse, not even being a MILF. And I know it's kind of sexually, maybe offensive term. But at the same time, nobody wants to be told they're not one. 
<laughs> so it's an offensive term that you want applied to you. That's what you're saying. You, everyone secretly wants it because nobody wants to be one they don't want to. Stup, should say. <laughs> what does that make me then? You're a Dolph. <laughs> a Dolph. A Dolph Lundgren. A, a Dado. <laughs> Dado. I'd like to fight. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. You're a Dilf. Is that what it spells out to? I'm still slightly Dado, hungover, like to, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so that's it. So I'm a non-MILF and you're a Dilf. <laughs> but, but you'd like to fight, just to absolutely... That's really awful, her. being it's sort of half-cut like and thinking you're attractive and then somebody telling you you're not. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, oh, yeah, whoa, and have you got oh, anything whoa. to report from oh, over your past week? Oh, whoa, um, Ando. Just, just, yeah. I think I saw your chimney fire up. Uh, yeah, oh, I, so I had a barbecue and I had, a, a, and I fired up the chimney. And also, I discovered a new thing that I'm really proud of, which is that you could make really nice pizzas by not using pizza at all, buying some pita breads, putting on some sort of, you know, make up some tomato mix, a bit of garlic, tomato puree, chopped tomatoes, basil, put, cook it up, put that on, put on some mozzarella, some olives, and maybe a bit of salami. And you've got, you put them in the oven for 10 minutes and you've got like mini pizzas. They're just awesome. And my, my youngest daughter came round and she's got this thing at the moment where she, insists on wearing sliders with socks so she's become known in the family as Socrates <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might be something to do with making pizza because you tend to see the guys with the stripy t-shirts shuffling mm. around on shoes like that they're kind of hygiene <laughs> cooking shoes yeah or, no I, I what the, the cooking shoes that I often wear are my crocs <laughs> <laughs> They're oh. proper, proper cooking shoes, proper chef cooking shoes. Yeah, now you're, you have to be whites. stripped of your Dilf status now. <laughs> Dilm, Dad, I'd like to mock. <laughs> That's it! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dad dear. in illegal socks. What's been up in your world down in sunny Devon? Oh, a bit of beach activity when the weather gets hot and then it goes back to the pendulous swing of the climate change. And then you can't go anywhere and you have to stay in playing puzzles and stuff. I just bored you with all the childcare provider. Anyone who has to deal with childcare in this lockdown, whatever it is, phase at the moment, before school starts, I totally sympathise. It's making me go madder than mad. But um, I'm sure some of you are there with your heads in your hands trying to escape the reality of your life with the reality of other people's worse lives. Other than that, yeah, no, outdoor fun, really. Bit of drinking indoors fun nice excellent right then um so we're going to talk about um a few things today but the first thing i think we're going to talk about is a rather gruesome murder um and a man jailed for a minimum of 29 years for a murder in september last year you might know the name keely bunker she she was a a young woman um, from Tamworth in the West Midlands, and she went out for a night in Birmingham. At, at, at one of the, at one of those um, classic nightclub names. Oh, this yeah. one is called Snobs. It's a bit like sort of calling a nightclub, you know, Castaways, Castaways in Watford, or you know those sort of crummy nightclub names that you get, sort of you know Cinderellas in Cleethorpes. But this was um, snobs in Birmingham. So she went out with some friends, and one of these friends was an old-school friend of hers she'd known for years called Wesley Street, and he was 20 years old, or he is 20 years old. They went out, went back to Tamworth, went back to her friend Monique's house, um, where she decided she'd walked home, and she said to her friend, this is quite haunting, she said, I'll be safe, I've got Wes with me, he'll see me home safe and well. But sadly, he did not see her home safe and well. He raped and murdered her, and then he left her body in a 
sort of hidden kind of in undergrowth by a by a little river by a, a, a brook and did an so, awful yeah. lot of lying can you hear the thunder <laughs> can you hear that um anyway um he he lied an awful lot about this walk that they went on to try to get her safely home in inverted commas and it was obviously found out on CCTV and from put, putting bits and pieces and from unpicking the lies what he actually did and had to keep on returning to the scene of the crime to smooth things over and to try and get rid of evidence. But uh, her uncle found her body a few days later, didn't he? That's just horrible. I mean, imagine, you know, finding the the, the, the murdered body of your niece. I mean, that's just, that must be just horribly traumatic for him and this yeah this guy street the um the killer he yeah he changed his story about four times it's one of those ones where he would say one thing then the police would conf- you know confront him with evidence i don't know from his phone tracking or whatever or cctv showing he was somewhere else and he sort of saw it go mm, right and then he'd tell a different story and tell a different story and i think I mean, you know, when you're arrested, uh, the police always say, you know, you may not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence um, if you do not say now something you may rely on later. And of course, you know, the fact that he changed his story so many times completely, you know, would have blown out of the water any possible defence that uh, he could have had. I'm going to go into my psychological okay, thing now. And say, like, what motivates somebody to do something? I mean, look at them. You see the photos of them. You'd never believe this in a million years, would you? Well, um, we don't know. The, the judge sort of, you know, said that Keely had lost her life and lost, you know, that her family had lost um, a beloved daughter, sister, and niece. But afterwards, the um, the, the police, uh, Detective Inspector Cheryl Hannan, the senior investigating officer, said that, um, you know. <laughs> Street was a devious and manipulative character, someone who'd repeatedly lied and targeted young women. Um, and in fact, he was also convicted at this trial of um, attacking other uh, young women too. He was, wasn't just sentenced for raping and murdering um, Keely Bunker, but also found guilty of two other counts of rape and three counts of sexual assault against three other victims. Of course, because they're still alive, they are guaranteed anonymity as is right just going back to a motivation for something I mean uh, what we have found on occasion has been opportunism and that does interest me in a sense that you know some of the emails that we're going to go on to talk about is uh, one of them it Mm. sort of struck me that you know although these crimes are kind of horrifying and kind of scary that's the those are the words that were used by one person who wrote in you do want to understand them you get drawn in don't you and and I'm finding that about this case I look at that young man I think he's got his whole life ahead of him why do something so it must have been off the cuff but well he was very drunk I mean the evidence was that he was very very drunk he had been drinking heavily I mean in fact on the on the cab that he and um, the the two women uh, caught back from from snobs in Birmingham to Tamworth he had he asked it to stop so he could be sick um, through excess drink and um, clearly he was very drunk his judgment was impaired but I mean I suppose you know this is speculation but I suppose they'd known each other since they were children she was clearly a very vibrant very attractive young woman it's quite possible he had harbored this you know um, unrequited um, love stroke lust for her and on this occasion he was presented with the opportunity they were alone together it was the early hours of the morning and he just decided to 
enact his his fantasy and um, with without any thought for the consequences. But of course, you know, he was convicted of other sex crimes. He was clearly a sexual predator. Um, and he just decided that um, that night he was going to predate on Keely Bunker. And of course, it's she quite presumably thin put up a fight ground. and he murdered her. It's quite thin ground, Ben. And I wonder if other people will be listening in the same capacity as I am. And everything's screaming no. I've sat on rape trials. I, I know enough about, you know, the accusations of, of um, sexual crimes to yeah. know that you rape and you murder and that's the end of it. That's the decision that a jury has to make. Yeah. And does it make any difference whether it's unrequited? I mean, this guy, you know, shouldn't have done that. And that's my question. What trips you? I, I understand where you're going with the motivation. Say, of course he shouldn't have done it. I know. I'm thinking. What, what I'm saying is that they'd known each other for many years. I, I suspect. I, I wasn't in court for this one, of course. But I suspect that he had had lustful feelings for her that night he was very drunk. He had he had formed a pattern of being a sexual predator. He had at that point he had got away with rape before he had got away with sexual assault before uh, he just assumed perhaps that he would be able to sexually assault and molest Keeley um, she perhaps put up a fight um, he claims that he accidentally strangled her during sex obviously the jury didn't believe that but he did uh, throttle her and and also I mean he, he put her body in this brook hit it with some branches he went home at about 6.20 he hit around about 5am he, he went home around about 6.20 he then um four hours later went back to where he had left her body um, to cover over and hide her with more branches and um, the evidence was that he made a number of trips that day the day after the killing well I suppose the day of the killing later that day um, to uh, back to the, 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 the deposition site where he put her body so he was clearly I mean he was clearly thinking and sort of being strategic enough and to think I need to hide this body so he was clearly thinking I need to get away with this he wasn't this wasn't yeah. some kind of you know oh my god what have I done and immediately going to the police yes. and um, accepting culpability and, and just saying I'm you know this was a terrible terrible accident oh my god he was trying to hide the body he was he was being manipulative it was manipulative behavior he was trying to get away with it I suppose what I'm driving at is at yeah. what point do you get to the stage of this is my childhood friend, you know, she'll never go out with me probably, I, you know, blah, blah, and becoming a manipulative rapist and murderer. Do you see what I mean? Is this a norm, like, do, is it a normal progression to a certain point? Or is being terribly drunk? I mean, the, the other cases that we've covered in this capacity don't seem to, you know... They don't seem to be drunk people doing the crimes, do they? It's difficult. I suppose. Every, individual, every individual is different. You know, Wesley Street had a proven pattern of sexually, um, you know, aggressive um, behaviour. He was a. We now know he'd raped before. He had sexually assaulted um, three uh, women before he raped and murdered Keeley. So he clearly had a pattern of behaviour there. I guess he'd got away with it and thought. He could get away with it. And I think the problem is that if you do something terrible, the first time you do it, it's quite possible. Oh, my God, what have I done? But if you get away with it, if you aren't caught, if the victim doesn't go to the police, you might think to yourself, oh, OK, well, I guess I can do it again. And this is the danger. This is why it's so important when, um, you know, so someone is a victim of crime, if they can possibly bring themselves to go to see, to talk to the police. It's such a it's so good because this is the danger. If somebody isn't challenged, isn't 
brought to book for one piece of bad behaviour, then it can escalate, get worse and worse. There are so many things involved in what you're saying, though, because it's ideal that 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 doesn't progress in somebody's life and that people do go. But as you and I, what what was it recently? It was 80% of of, um, sexual offences that are reported don't result in any conviction i think it's something along those lines yeah it's a really it's absolutely it's a really difficult balance and um conviction rates for sexual offenses be they rape sexual assault um they are lower i think than anybody um wishes and it's a this is a real problem and the problem is often they happen between two individuals in a private place and it's one person's word against another there's very little forensics and increasingly one thing i did notice during um uh, my career reporting on court cases was that, and this you could call this the CSI effect, is that increasingly juries expected there to be forensic evidence. They expected to be given some kind of a, a smoking gun of forensic evidence that would categorically prove that a particular crime took place. And of course, often the reason that cases get to trial is there isn't anything clear. And this is where they have to use their own common sense, their own gut instinct, their own... Um, view of the world um, and this is the whole point of being tried by a jury of your peers they are people who have a similar view of the world to you and are are trusted to make between the 12 of them hopefully a unanimous um, decision based on the evidence they've heard and it isn't always um, you know totally cut and dried it's often they do have to make impressions about how people come across how they behave do they look like they're lying do they look genuine it's it's you know being a juror is not easy no one no one's claiming for a second that it's an easy thing to do but even if it gets to that stage, because the CPS need a certain amount of evidence to prosecute, which doesn't always get there, even if there is a guilty party, which is fairly clear in, you know, the average layman's eyes, does it? It's, yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, the CPS have got difficult decisions to make because the, the, the truth is, however unpalatable, the truth is that there is not an inexhaustible pile of public money ready for trials. Trials are expensive. Barrister is expensive, courtrooms expensive, justice is expensive, and there isn't. And, a, and the, the CPS has to do two things when it's deciding whether somebody should be charged. Is it in the interests of justice for this person to be charged? Well, if they think they're guilty, then yes, obviously. Secondly, is there a realistic chance of conviction? They have to be sure that they've got at least a chance of getting a conviction, because otherwise the courts could be filled with what you might regard as vexatious cases where there's very little evidence. Often these, and remember, somebody's in our, under our system. Someone is innocent until proven guilty. They have to be proved guilty. They don't have to prove their innocence. So any jury, when they're sworn in, will be told by the judge, "You have to be sure this person is guilty." Now that's quite a high bar for the evidence to reach. And and we've talked about juries before and about things that go on in the jury room. Um, and I think that. The CPS has an unenviable job trying to decide whether a case is strong enough to bring to court. And uh, and certainly they don't always get it right. And I think they would probably admit they don't always get it well, right. Well, I wonder, I'm going to touch on miscarriages of justice later, prompted okay. by a listener. So um, that's something that we can sort of, that comes out of that. But the other thing that um, it brings forward is the isolated situation, of course, you know, and the cost as well, exactly elements of the DEP versus NGN trial that we've been talking a lot about, how to prove an unenviable task on the part of the judge now to make those decisions as to what happened in those times when even the supposed perpetrator was perhaps very high on drink and drugs. 
Yeah, I mean, the Johnny Depp uh, Amber Heard case is a bit different, as you know, because it's a civil action. So first of all, the burden of proof is purely the balance of probabilities. It's effectively 51%, you have to think, is is right uh, when you make your ruling. Secondly, of course, it's a it's an action between a private individual and a company. So each of those is paying their own legal costs. Now, when the judge may makes his ruling he may decide that um, one party should pay all of the other's costs and that's a ruling he can make but it's not being funded out of the public pocket and this is this is the point the CPS has to decide how best to spend public money and it's a difficult one I'm not saying it's easy for a second yeah well fascinating and Mm. um, and a terrible terrible case this poor young girl and her all the people who know her and her family so of course are deepest thoughts go mm, absolutely. Um, to I mean, something really, so raw. really tragic, really yes, sad. Terrible. Um, and, you know, so we talked a bit about Johnny, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. We are going to be picking that up later because we had quite a few, some really interesting feedback, which I want to, what I want to talk about. Um, but now I think, well, well, we're staying with um, a sexual attacker and we're going to pick up again on Delroy Grant, the night stalker from South London. Um, and we spoke to Colin Sutton about this, Victoria. That's right, the man who headed the investigation and talking about the sort of trials and tribulations in terms of manning an investigation like this and how it was a crime which went on for such a prolonged period of time. Indeed, with its hiccups as well, and a particularly big hiccup right in the middle, and how former DCI Colin Sutton concluded the manhunt, indeed the name of the TV drama, which was based on his pursuit of not only Delroy Grant, the Night Stalker, so-called Night Stalker, but also Levi Belfield. The Night Stalker investigation, um, uh, Operation Minstead, was was not one that um, Colin was originally involved in. He was brought in, if you recall, recall, well, he'll tell us all about it, but he was brought in to to look at it and sort of see if something could be done differently because it did seem that the police at that time had come up against a bit of a a brick wall trying trying to track down this guy who was burglarising, if that's a word, um, burgling and, and, and sexually assaulting very elderly victims. So here we go. With Delroy Grant, it was people saying, no, you, you must have the wrong person, not Delroy, not him. He looks after, he's a full-time care for his wife. His wife is severely disabled and he looks after her. Um, he's the life and soul of the of the cricket team and, and the pub and, and um, he plays music and he likes the street parties we have and people just really couldn't believe and literally thought we had the wrong man, that we couldn't have the right man. So compared to Levi Belfield when introduced to me, I have the same thing some years later at Lewisham Police Station, early hours of the morning, I go in and I'm introduced to, to Dora Grant and this is Mr Sutton, he's the boss and he extends his hand and says, hello, sir. You know, he didn't say pleased to meet you. I said to him, pleased to meet you, because I was. At that time, we would give them like a white sweatshirt, white jogging pants, white plimp soles. So I've got this 53-year-old uh, Jamaican man standing there dressed all in white, and he was of that generation that cricket was a thing. So I, I kind of said, what are you doing then, Delroy, batting or bowling? And he seized upon it, and he said, oh, are you into cricket? I said, yes, of course I am. He said, oh, I bet you don't still play. So I said, I do, actually, yeah. And I, he said, oh, bowl and bat? Oh, no, I can't bowl these days, Delroy. No, my knees are not good enough for that. And we started having this conversation about England's prospects on their winter tour. And he knew that he'd just given a DNA sample that was going to match up and was going to put him in prison, essentially, for, for the rest of his life. It was almost as if he'd sort of come to the decision that, you know, yeah, it's going to happen one day, and when it does, I'll just take it as it comes, and it's just another day at work, you know. 
But how can really strange. you act like that, knowing that, you know, because I would just be totally tongue-tied and staring mm. at them and backing off or doing something strange. Are you able to just be so natural because it's your job? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think the job, you know, people think the job's about kind of detection and detective work and that, and, it, and I, I guess it is, there's a lot of it, but you're a police officer first and a detective afterwards, and when you're a police officer first, that being a police officer is essentially about dealing with people and it's about talking to people and understanding people and trying to get a handle on how people are going to react and how to talk to them and how to, 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 to strike up some sort of rapport with them. So, Well, you've hit the nail on the head and what I wanted to ask. How do you reconcile yourself somehow? I mean, you know, now you've sort of walked away from the job. Mm. Do you are you ever woken up at night thinking about did did anything really kind of get you or unsettle you to that extent that it stayed with you or does everything stay with you? No, um, to be absolutely honest, no. I never wake up at night thinking about awful things that I've seen or heard or been part of. One of the great things that's come out over the last few years is the fact that there's recognition that emergency service workers not just police but fire fighters and, and nhs paramedics and, and nhs staff in hospitals they have a chance of being frightened of being stressed of of being affected by the traumatic things that they see and actually it's not good enough to just say yes that's part of your job and if people can't cope with it, then they need help in coping with it and supporting. And that's something that's that's, that's happened really only, you know, it's only in the last few years. You know, every, every murder that was investigated by my team, they investigated to the nth degree as much as they possibly could, as much as we possibly could. Because even just as a matter of, you know, professional pride, we wanted to solve everything that was put in front of us, and we very nearly did. And some of the victims that we dealt with, you would have to say, became victims because of lifestyle choices that they'd made. And then there were some who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, like, you know, Emily and Marsha. And, you know, I mean, Emily Delagrange's parents, Marsha McDonald's parents, they're just the most lovely, wonderful, dignified people you could ever want to meet. And I'm still in touch with with, with, with Marsha's parents um, and, and, and some of her family. And it was difficult not to feel devastated for them you know that we we are darkly funny in a way on our podcast i i i i'm an admirer of your work Victoria. Yes. <laughs> thank <laughs> you Colin. i cornered you i would eventually get something like that. no thank you um but i i wonder what because i know that you know because you're working in true crime and and the genre has exploded which you've also spoken i think with ben about yeah do you yeah. think it is in people who are so i mean i'm sure at a dinner party or when you're out and you mention what you did and what you do people have these kind of stock surprise you know shock reaction mm, what is it in people that kind of is so hungry for these kind of details because it's out of the ordinary because it's beyond most people's in this, you know, immediate personal experience, isn't it, thankfully? Can I just ask you, Colin, because if mm. I could just go back in time a little bit to, to Delroy Grant again. And um, mm. so obviously you've just told us about, you know, how you met him and mm. when he was arrested and bonded over cricket. But yeah. when you were brought into that, because you were brought in to review the investigation, weren't you? Yeah. And 
I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that you're brought in, there is a team of officers there who will think they've been doing their best job. Yeah. What sort of pressures are on you and how do you go about managing that situation so you then get the best out of them and get the breakthrough that you need? It's, it's pretty tough. Um, I mean, it's, it's all at the front of my mind, so I've been writing it all recently. But uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, you, you, go, you go into it and, and you know, you know, nobody likes being reviewed. Nobody likes having their work raked over by one of their peers, do they? You know, and... and particularly if it's something they've done that's not been particularly successful or at all successful. Um, so th there's always there's that. I mean, the, the only thing that, that helped to a degree was that Operation Minstead took place exclusively in the sort of southeast corner of London. It was you know south of the river and east of the A23 and in London. That was the area. And it was the one part of London where I had never worked. So I knew... Well, I knew nobody on the team, you know, so because that even makes it harder, you know, if you're you're called in to rake over somebody who, who you've worked with and who's a friend of yours and, and you've got to look over their work. So that was the only good thing, really. Um, and I thought when I first went there, it was going to be sort of a matter of me being there for two weeks, come up with a few ideas or not come up with a few ideas and pull out again. Um, when I'd spent that two weeks and I'd looked at it and I'd thought there might be other ways of doing it, you kind of then have this decision could i have could i have gone to to my boss and said right actually i don't want to do this now you know I, I, there's your review there's what i think should be implemented can i go back to putney please and there was a big part of me that wanted to do that if what i'd done if what i thought was right and was going to work then actually it's quite nice to be there while it does work isn't it rather than give it to somebody i, I don't know it was it was a it was kind of a, a call that i felt i had to make in the event i don't think I could have made that call. I think I would have been told to stay there, whatever. But once I took it over, it was, you know, we were surprisingly fortunate, really, that the plan we had was seen by those above me to be desirable. The very sad thing about the whole Operation Minstead case was said to me by, uh, I'll name him, Nathan Easton, who was the DI on it when, when I went over there. And I'm still in touch with Nathan. Nathan, he's a really good guy. And did a really good job and he said to me one day that if these victims had been aged 23 to 38 rather than 63 to 98 or 68 to 93 whichever it was then it wouldn't have gone on for so long that there'd have been a you know a sort of a clamor and outrage um but it was almost as if you've got this very vulnerable group in society of old people who were being preyed upon and because they didn't really have a, a voice and nobody was shouting for them, it wasn't being taken as seriously as it ought to have been. Somehow these old people getting burgled and a few of them being raped and, and a few more being indecently assaulted wasn't box office. And yet in the twilight of their life, these these these, these, these ladies were, were finding themselves blighted. You know, we, when we arrested him, family liaison officers were ringing up victims and saying telling them that we'd got him and it wasn't just one there were two or three who said well i can go back to sleeping at night rather than during the daytime now can't i so these old people in their 70s and 80s had been sitting up every night since they'd been attacked in case he came back so they were awake and they'd hear him so you yeah. had an idea and you had a strategy in mind and mm. At that time, you weren't the SIO. You were mm. just the guy who'd been brought in to do the review. Yeah. And there was there was a lot of, well, what 
what I'm Politics. hearing is there was there was posh yeah pushback politicking yeah but then you become the SIO yeah. you you get the resources and your plan uh, you, you you'll tell us but your plan was basically to flood the streets with with officers yeah and, and hope to see well, something not exactly flood the street with officers I mean that that sounds like a sort of a high profile boost you know Operation Swampy type thing this was everyone thought he was a rapist and he was occasionally but actually every single offence he committed was a burglary. Sometimes there were burglaries, most times there were burglaries with no rape. He would break in, he'd talk to the old lady or sometimes the old man for some time, frighten them to death, steal cash and jewellery or whatever they had lying about and go. And when you have a burglar on a division, you know, going back to right into the 80s when I joined, if they were burgling hell out of a particular estate or, or a particular type of house, something like that, the bosses would grab as many sort of spare officers as they could, put a team of about 20 together, and you'd sit in cars or vans or in people's bedrooms looking out the window. And eventually your man would come along and do one in front of you and you'd all jump on him and he's arrested and, and it was down the pub. And, you know, that's that's how it worked day in, day out across across London, across the country. And so what I thought was really, you know, what we've got is that, but on a much bigger scale, because instead of just an estate or a part of the division, you've got a quarter of London, and that's going to take a lot more people. So we had to be a bit more intelligent in terms of our analysis of what the sort of house he worked, he liked to, to break into and the sort of locations he used. And I wanted to do that and then to observe that area in a way that he would not know we were there and did not know we, we'd been there. I was confident that if we did that, we could sit there and he would come and do one in front of us. In the event, what happened, we started the first night, had 70-odd officers keeping observations, but you wouldn't have known they were there. And the first night, he committed two offences just up to the north, about half a mile from our area, and then drove through our area, but of course we didn't know it was him, didn't know it was his car, and did one to the southeast of it. And then the second night, we now know what sort of car he's driving with. We're a little bit sort of looking up, looking out for things more. He committed an offence a long way away from our area of observations and was very nearly caught because he was he was heard breaking in and the, 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 the victim phoned the police and the, the uniform officers were 20 seconds behind him. And there was an immense and epic foot chase over gardens and through parks and through a river and over a wall and all this sort of thing went on for a couple of miles and there's a young 20 mid-20s fit officer who's outrun by what we then found to be a 53 year old but uh, he did he outran him just shows what what, what kind of uh, adrenaline i guess can do to you um and he he was 20 seconds away from being arrested and that frightened him and he didn't come back for two weeks and so we've got this huge operation this expensive operation going on for two weeks and nothing's happening and then finally he came back and when he came back and decided it was safe to offend again he did it right in the middle of our observations and was arrested wow that must have been quite nerve-wracking when there was that huge gap and there was all this money being spent yeah i had i had a guy <laughs> i was standing in the control room where we were running it and you've got these banks of screens and computers and you know it was state-of-the-art sort of whatever we could do for surveillance and a, a senior officer chief superintendent came up to me and, and just looked at it all and he said and then we'd had sort of 13 days or 12 days then without any any action at all. And he said, how long, are we gonna, how long can we keep this going for, Colin? And I said, until someone's got the balls to sign it off, sir. And he looked at me and said, hmm, fair enough, and walked away. I didn't see him again. 
<laughs> and that was the thing because you know if you were the person who said no you've got to stop and he kills somebody the next night yeah yeah it's one occasion where the sort of risk averseness which has been so burgeoning in the police service over the last few years kept worked to my advantage i think nobody wants nobody wants to be that man or woman yeah. who signed it off yeah. Having set it started, nobody wanted to be the one to stop no. at the wrong time, of course. That's right, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, Colin, that's great. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, lovely bye -bye. speaking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thanks to Colin. I mean, it was really, really interesting talking to Colin. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to talking to him again in the future because I think he's got a few more projects in the pipeline that'll be really interesting to pick up on yes and um of course the upcoming series of manhunter based on the crimes that he's just been talking about i mean colin's funny actually he's he's funny to talk to i do enjoy listening to him and of course you know nothing beats speaking to somebody who is that who's there and who's you know what 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 was your feeling when that happened? How did you feel about that? You know, and the, with Delroy, you know, you could tell there was a couple of weeks when nothing happened. When for whatever reason they didn't get lucky, he wasn't active in the area where they had all staked out. And I'm sure Colin at that point must be thinking, "Oh shit, you know, have we, have, are we ever going to get that man?" I bet he wouldn't man? think like that. And that's no, the reason why you want him on the investigation. That, that. The way I, he talks I, about it, you can tell why he heads the job. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Colin wouldn't think that. That was me <laughs> paraphrasing. Yeah. Oh, Careful. <laughs> right then. Um, yeah. So now let's talk again about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Now, you know, everybody who's listening to this, who's interested in the case will know that we're now, all the evidence is finished. We've heard all we're going to hear from Johnny Depp, from Amber We've heard Heard from Heard. From We've heard from Heard. <laughs> yes, and that's it for Depp. Um, and it's all about now waiting for the judge. So the judge has gone away. And we think sometime in October he's going to come back, make his ruling, and, and basically say to people, you know, right, this is what I've found uh, on the balance of probabilities. Either he finds in favour of Johnny Depp and says, right, you know, I think, that you, you know, all the things that she said about you, um, you know, being aggressive and, and assaulting her are, are not true. Or he may find in favour of Amber Heard and decide that, you know, Johnny Depp was was not libelled when the Sun newspaper used the word wife beater to describe him. So, um, yeah. Now, but what's interesting here, so I've had quite a, a few people um, messaging me on Twitter in particular and saying, um, taking issue with a comment I made, I made last time where I questioned the wisdom of somebody in Johnny Depp's position for taking legal action. My point being that, Yes, you can clear your name, but going to court is always a lottery, no matter what anybody tells you. And also, some of the details and the information we have heard have been, I think, embarrassing to the point where, in actual fact, you might have preferred not to have to go to court and get those out at all. And of course, what people are saying is, hold on a second, you know, Johnny Depp here was being accused of being a wife beater. You know, you must be, you, Ben, must be an idiot if you think that that's not worth going to court over. And, you know, I'd like to say thanks to uh, Vivienne, to Melly, to Reed Orwell. Uh, these are people who engaged with me on Twitter and made some really good points, actually. I love the fact they're picking on you. <laughs> oh, I, I, they weren't picking on me. I think it was a really good debate. I mean, one of the, one oh, of the guys... Oh, my goodness. Sarcasm alert. <laughs> one of the guys said um, that he lost work because of this article. Now, I'm not sure if that's oh, really? true or not. I don't know if there's any evidence. And, of course, there is also separate litigation that Johnny Depp is taking in the United States over an op-ed article that um, Amber Heard wrote 
as a, as a sort of um, an advocate for um, domestic violence issues, and that was printed in the Washington Post. So there is separate litigation in the US. But, you know, um, I, I think certainly my comments struck a chord with some people and, and triggered others. Uh, and somebody actually said to me, do you not have functioning empathy? <laughs> and I thought, well, actually... <laughs> How do they know? Well, they well, must have listened right, intently to the I, last it's podcast. True. And it made me think, and I realised I don't have a lot of empathy. And I wonder, what, and I did then sort of come back and say, it's quite possible I don't have a lot of empathy. And part of the reason for that might be that I think as journalists, much in the same way and in a far less important sense, but much in the way that, you know, doctors, nurses, emergency services, workers, fire crews, police just have to get on with the job and can't maybe afford to get too emotionally involved with the, the things they're working on because if they did then they would perhaps not be able to function I mean you know maybe journalists when we're covering court cases and doing that stuff we we kind of train ourselves to dial down our empathy so we don't become so absorbed and involved yes and in what's no I'd like to interject in that because I think that a good away. A good, healthy dose of em- empathy can really help you cover... I remember covering a, quite a violent street brawl case which ended up in partial severing of a head uh, or attempted to sever, so it was an attempted murder. And my colouring, those reports, made it, really, because I was sort of kind of trying to muscle my way into doing court reporting as, you know, you can, you all know that Ben and I love to do this particular aspect of our jobs. So that that colour and the, the things that you and Ben, like you, you always sort of are interested in the court portraits and that kind of detail, I think it really helps to colour it. And you can't do that without empathy. OK, I mean... Yes, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, but certainly, you know, what people were saying on Twitter, I thought was really interesting. And yeah, you know, really gave me pause for thought. And I, I, do, I do actually agree that I don't necessarily think, it might be because I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm borderline autistic or something, but I don't actually think I empathise as much as other people do in these circumstances. No shit. Yeah, no shit Sherlock. Because <laughs> case in point, I won't um, drag in too many personal examples which are off the record, but sometimes I will have an occasional disaster in my life where something needs remedying by me and me alone and I'm working round the clock and then I say to Ben, I, I've, I've got the edit to do for the podcast and do you think... And he's like, I'm at a barbecue. I can't really help. Um, good luck with that. See you later. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm on the receiving end. This is where it hurts most. Does it sting? It does sting. But, um, yeah, no, some of the interactions that I've had about Johnny Depp. Firstly, I want to say, and I said this last week, how impressed I am with the Depp fans because I thought we'd have a lot more people getting on our case and saying, how can you make light and how can you be... And we haven't had as much of that as I thought because... There's a sense of humour there, but when it comes to talking about Johnny Depp and unfairness, it's that that tends to be the moot point. Wherever you think the unfairness lie, and Nick Wallace indeed picked up on the fact, and you and Nick, didn't you, Ben, picked up on there's the defence and the prosecution argument, so when that worm turns, it's not necessarily comfortable for some people if they are thinking that one person's in the right and one person's in the wrong. Um, yeah, but Mitz, also, mm. so a lot of the humour in this one was around, you know, Amber Heard and the fact that Amber Heard <laughs> sadly rhymes with turd. And there was, and, and, you know, the, the one, my one takeaway from this is that Johnny Depp walked into his bedroom and found a massive shit in it. And I thought, well, I've never walked into my bedroom and found a shit in the bed. So, you know, I've got one over and on I Johnny And I quote there, you, that. 
Ben, what we nearly cut out, the, the part we nearly cut out was, so it was a boo-poo, not an amber turd. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, so that's that's where the humour is. So I, I suppose, you know, I mean, nobody's actually taking the piss out of Johnny Depp here or taking the piss out of Amber Heard. I think what we're doing is we are it's not piss. kind of lampooning the, the bizarre details <laughs> of their lifestyle the that have been revealed in this court case <laughs> and, and pointing out that, you know, this is not how most normal people live their lives. Well, I think sort of everyone knows that. Scrawling on the walls, and well, I don't know. I don't. I don't scrawl on my walls and things. And but if leave, I can, if I can be allowed to finish here, okay, haven't said that on. for a while. I said it's news to some people. It, this is what's oh, coming yeah, across yeah, yeah, on yeah, yeah. Twitter. Yeah, no, you don't have to repeat it. I get it now. Get yeah, it now. Okay. No, Maybe it's just you so, who's slow. Everyone so else. So basically, it. It was, you, your sort of genteel surprise that a woman could ever be violent for a man struck something of a chord with people who have been thumped by their partners. No, I said that people were being partners. naive about it and they were saying ah, it, it yes. was... It could more likely be a woman because it's a novelty aspect, so let's blame the woman. And if you want to blame the woman, that's something to kind of peg on her type of thing. Right, yeah, fair enough. Anyway, I I so, but I think everyone gets my point by now. I just wanted to make sure that everybody realised that I said it does go beyond that. And of course, if it's, you know, if it's a man to a man or a woman to a woman, it's still abuse and it has to be seen in its own right. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm not thinking that just because it's going a particular way around. I'm sure right? nobody is Can thinking I dig the that hole? you're not thinking. Let's no dig this hole. No one's thinking that you're not thinking. No one's thinking. Everyone's thinking you don't Everyone's think. not thinking about what you're thinking and nobody cares what you're thinking. Everyone's right. caring that you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so uh, hey. you know what we've got to say? We've got to say, we've got to tell people. I mean, I say we've had some oh. response on Twitter, some response on email. If you want to tweet us, our Twitter is at YDLMF Podcast. If you want to email us, our email address is you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com. And we have had some really interesting emails. Can I talk about the McLibel case? Yes, so, well, yes. I mean, this is an email from uh, from someone called Max. Uh, the Max secrets Will. in I the won't name. Say the full name. I don't, I don't think I should say for people's full names, should I? No, I'm I'm sort of saying bits and pieces. And but do make it clear to us when you're writing to us what you want us to call you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so Max Maxwell writes, dear Vicky and Ben, blah blah blah. Uh, ben said, when it comes to case of libel, oh, wealthy Vicky. people are all. Sorry, you're, you are you're a sticky yeah. Vicky. Well, um, you can call him what you like if he's calling me Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> Tricky Vicky. <laughs> when it comes to cases of libel, wealthy people or organisations are unlikely to sue smaller impoverished individuals or groups. And I did say that in the context that you're not going to win very much. But actually, um, Maxwell makes a really good point. There was the famous McLibel case, which was um, two environmental activists, Helen Seal and David Morris, who were taken to court by McDonald's because McDonald's didn't like leaflets They were that they were, the two of them were handing out outside a McDonald's restaurant. Um, Maxwell writes, this became the longest case in British history. I didn't know that. I knew it went on a long, long time. Um, so English, I read. Okay, British but I get history, it. So yeah. British oh, history is what's been okay. written here. But Despite the multi-million pound legal bill paid by McDonald's, they only partially won. And Helen Steele and David Morris successfully won a case in the European Court of Human Rights against the British government for denying them legal aid. And um, this led to changes in the libel laws in England. So... I mean, yeah, I mean, when we say British, of course, you know, it is England and Wales because the, the courts in England and Wales govern those jurisdictions and Scotland has its own legal system. So you're right, although it was written British, you're right, Victoria, it's England, England and Wales. What I like, Max, is that this is a power to the people. Did, hey, 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 did hey. Maxwell say you could call them Max? You or called you him assuming? Max. I said Maxwell. I said Maxwell all the way through. And he called, Good, he called me Billericky Vicky. Could Maxwell not be a female? I've oh. just been 
very consciously not saying him or her. Okay. I was just saying they. Either way. Anyway, either way, yes. Either, either way. way um, I do think it's a power to the people case that I think the point being made here ultimately is that you don't have to be a huge corporation to take action like this and that it proves that people can do this. And we've gone from, in our podcast, to one of the biggest cases in, what was it called, in the century was the tagline for the DEP versus NGN trial to yeah. the longest running so we've basically done it all you, everything you need to know about libel trials listen to it we right ticked here every box <laughs> we've kicked every ass <laughs> <laughs> well we haven't we've just talked no, about ass kicking we, we haven't kicked any asses nobody's no. ass has been kicked no it's all a load of ass <laughs> non-kicked ass I'd like to talk about mincing people and body disposal. Oh, wow. Go on, tell me more. Well, we've had an email from a glamorous news lady. You know who you are. <laughs> it's Two okay. alternative body disposal methods here. <laughs> and yeah, glamorous news lady is going to be your moniker from now on till you come and join us. I'm going to poke you and poke you till you come and talk to us about all these delicious crimes that you keep taunting me with, including a man who apparently there, there was no proof of where he disposed of his wife and fam- his two children, I think it was. Yep. His wife and children. But it was believed he'd minced them at his restaurant and thrown them into the Sulcum estuary. And she goes on to say that's long enough ago for it to be safe to eat the local crab. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, yeah, that's this John, is John a case Allen. About John Allen, go on, Ben. Yeah, so, but this, this is uh, this is a what you might call a real cold case. Well, I suppose not cold case because it was solved. But he, so John Allen's wife Victoria and his two children, who were um, very young at the time, uh, I think they were five and seven. Uh, Jonathan, seven-year-old, and five-year-old Victoria, uh, disappeared from Sulcombe in 1975. So a long, long time ago. And he, he died in 2017 uh, in prison, uh, still protesting his, his innocence. Mm. So great, a great case there. I mean, I haven't looked into it enough to, to take it further. But what I did have a brief look at was the other case that's mentioned, um, Charlene Downs. And actually a bit more sombre here because then it went into grooming and uh, prolific child sex offenders in... Blackpool. That's right. Yeah, I do remember now. Yeah, so very, yeah. very sad case, and they didn't find a body for that either. Yeah. So very little can be done, as we know. She disappeared in two thousand and three. And there's still a um, hundred thousand pound reward for any information. And this is um, what I mean. This case allegedly brought to light what was described as endemic child sexual abuse in the town, and the police believe that for a lot, a protracted period before her disappearance, Charlene had been the victim of sort of sexual abuse or child sexual abuse at the hands of one or more men. She was only 14 when she disappeared. And, yeah, I mean, but but her, she disappeared and her, her, her body has never been found. But according to an internal police report, she was one of 60 girls in Blackpool, some as young as 11, who had been groomed by men um, to take part in, in sex acts. And they'd be given food and cigarettes um, by the sort of men working in like fast food uh, joints uh, in exchange for sex. And possibly an early indicator of what was to come in terms of grooming because that was 
2003. And then we know that the grooming trials that went ahead in sort of areas around sort of Midlands and moving oh, yeah, northwards. I mean, there's been and lots and, and, and around, you know, the, the, the Sheffield, you know, Rotherham, Sheffield, Yorkshire. But, but back to Charlene, I mean, what happened there also was that there were several arrests... Um, two men were tried and during the prosecution case there were suggestions made that when talking about disposing of the body the men had talked about putting it in kebabs sold from the fast food outlet where they worked which is utterly revolting Um, but in that case the jury failed to reach a verdict a retrial was ordered for 2008 but there was there were serious errors in sort of covert surveillance techniques that were used. So, and this comes back to what we were talking about before, actually, Victoria. The CPS decided they could offer no case and the men were released. Um, So this is where, for various reasons, you know, the the case just couldn't be proven against uh, against, uh, two men who were then released without charge. And, of course, in legal terms, they are innocent because they have never been found guilty. Right, and then um, that kind of leads on to some miscarriages of justice. So hold that thought for the next email. But um, I just want to say that this listener goes on to say where she refused to get a kebab for dinner when she read about it. So thank you for those. I, I knew that your green light went on as soon as I started chatting about, as I do, about body disposal with you. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, and um, I think I can say, Guy, Big Bear, you're becoming quite famous as our, Guy, yeah. as, as <laughs> our correspondence address, Guy Big Bear on Twitter. Yeah, thanks for Guy, for emailing in, yes. Guy, and uh, thanks for your very kind words about, about what we do. Um, Guy likes the fact that I Oh, it's not kind to me. Sw- I just get enthusiastic. No, Guy, oh, Guy's very... Guy, Guy likes the fact that I can apparently get quite sweary now I don't work for the BBC, which is true. I mean, now I don't give a shit what I say. I can say Listen what I like. you proving like, it as well. I, yeah, exactly. I'm just... Because I'm swearing because, as we know, it's big and clever. <laughs> there you are, kids. Swear a lot, kids. It's big and clever. Yeah, fucking brilliant. Okay. <laughs> don't let your daughter hear you say that. I don't. <laughs> she doesn't listen. No, to she just hears it. Like sometimes, and I know everyone who's got kids does this. That you go, you think that that they're out of earshot, and so you say something, and then five minutes <laughs> yes. later, you yeah. hear at, at age two there was a bugger. <laughs> oh, God, how? They've got they're like sponges. Anyway, yeah, you anyway, like this because you were flattered. But th- thanks to everybody who's given us feedback. And, no, no, and, no, you know, no, I want to carry on with that email. Okay, sorry. I like it, because I Apologies. like the fact that there was... Um, it was about crimes in the news, and the, po- the point that um, I think a lot of us have in common, that these crimes that we're covering are scary and horrid, and I think this, this was put perfectly here. Real, I've got a real interesting crime. I find what some people can do to others quite horrifying and scary... But equally, you get drawn into it. And that just spoke volumes to me. And I think it kind of unites us together in the fact that we are kind of crime hounds and we have an interest in these weird things. Um, Also, he goes on to say, and talking of all the things that we have an interest in, miscarriages of justice. And Ben, you said many. This is like, I know that you want to move me on because you think I'm waffling, but (laughs) which would be so far from the truth. Miscarriages of justice is something that you've wanted to delve into a bit as well. Absolutely. And Stefan Kishko, in fact, is one he mentioned specifically. We are definitely going to be talking about that in a later podcast because that's one that I did work on and is, um, is, is one of the real shockers when it comes to miscarriages of justice. Yes. Um, and, of course, Yorkshire Ripper, everybody, uh, a lot of people sharing uh, Guy's experience, I think, and having sort of been 
you know, alerted to the fact that... Well, no, with the Yorkshire Ripper, I think, I mean, you know, there's no miscarriage of justice there. Peter Sutcliffe was found guilty. But I think the issue there is that there was a period when they were hunting for the Yorkshire Ripper when somebody called Wearside Jack um, was contacting the police, supposedly with clues, and led them up various um, dead-end alleys. He was a hoaxer. And that led to, I suspect, a lot of police resources being diverted and quite possibly meant that they didn't catch Peter Sutcliffe, the real New Yorkshire Ripper, as quickly as they would have done if they hadn't been led down various blind alleys. Yes, and as I was about to say, that it was often the time where people got hooked into crimes because that was just one which resonated. I think Colin Sutton said that, didn't he? Or maybe I'm confusing him with... Mark Williams Thomas, it might have been. That's right. Um, but it's certainly a huge one that, that has got a lot of people interested in true crime. Thank you very much to Guy. I think we'd better knock it on the head for the email. So I, I do want to thank emailers. If you've emailed into us, um, do bother because we do read them, um, even if sometimes we don't, we don't get around to answering. And also, all our new listeners, all our new likers and followers and the subscribers, the podcasts that stay close to our hearts, Lady Justice... Reverie, Malice, Fat, Drunk and Stupid. We love listening to each other. Welcome back, Paint and Poet. Our Paint and Poet sprung a leak. (laughs) Did you see that, Ben? No, I didn't. (laughs) Tell me more. But I think he's managed to plug the hole and luckily we had some dry weather, which has helped. Um, So we hope you're all right and you're on fine fettle to give us more poems. And there are other people who write us poems. Uh, Can you write us more poems, please? Because I miss them and love them. And I'd like to thank you for your, all your retweeting. People have been really busy supporting us on social media. And at Breaker6696, um, you were really lovely and supportive. So thank you for that. E Turner Babe and all the rest of you who are listening and following and um, supporting. Rate, like and subscribe, I think, is what you have to do. I definitely think that uh, hearing that the paint and poet has plugged his hole is a suitable moment to end on. (laughs) You'd like me to plug my hole now, wouldn't you? Goodness me. (laughs) Uh, The the, the mind boggles. (laughs) 